Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Unfortunately, the Leader of the Opposition is isolating, so I'm calling Ed Miliband to ask the questions on behalf of the Opposition. Ed Miliband. Th- thank you. Uh, I-, I just want to reassure both sides of the House, it's one time only that I'm back. Uh, mi- mi- Mr... Mi- Mr. Mr. Speaker, we all need the vital COP26 summit in Glasgow to deliver uh, next week. Hang because on. What, what, what is going on here? Are we, are we travelling through time? I mean, that's what I've been wondering all week. Back and better than ever. How, how did you first find out that I was doing Prime Minister's questions? Well, here is the odd thing. People started texting me saying, Ed's doing great, like I'm in some way responsible, like I'm your spouse or something. I'll read you the text exclusively for reasons to be cheerful listeners. I sent Justine a text at 12.24, I did PMQs versus Johnson. (laughs) Keir tested positive for COVID at 11.45. She then called me a minute later while I was in Prime Minister's Questions, and I thought, well, I can't really really answer and say, yeah, it went fine. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I said, I'm still here. You can watch it on playback. What's amazing is that I must have known before she did because people were texting me to tell me, which suggests that some people think of me as more of your spouse than, than they do of your actual spouse. You're my podcast spouse. I think you deserve a lot of the credit, actually. <laughs> I think so too, yeah. Um, so, so, so is it true? Is it five minutes before you find out that Keir Starmer has, has tested positive? I'll give you the full timeline. I was, it was about... It was about 11.40, I was on the phone to uh, my friend Lucy Powell, MP, and then the uh, my call waiting goes, and it's the it's Keir Starmer's chief of staff. And I said, oh, I better take that. So I said, hello. He says, are you in the building? And I was like, yes, I'm in the building. And he says, Keir says it's positive for COVID. Can you do PMQs? And I was like, yes. <laughs> Do you know the first thing I want to know? I, I want to see. I want to see that person's phone, and I want to know where you were on the list. Uh, low down. <laughs> uh, and and 
then I sort of say to my office because I then was in the other I was in another room and I say to the my office oh I need to talk to you and they look at me and I they I think they all thought that somebody had died because I looked very sort of ashen faced <laughs> and I then explained and then they looked ashen faced <laughs> and how how was your post traumatic stress disorder at this point I'm a sufferer of from it but I didn't really have time I then put on a tie get out of my trainers i mean an amazing thing is it's eleven forty in the morning and you haven't spilled something down yourself usually by that point in the day you, you you're stained and then i troop over to kia's office to get the questions do a right quick run through ring somebody who should remain nameless to say what's what do you think about a line about self-deprecating line about you know and how was aisha yeah exactly <laughs> Uh, uh, it's good to be back but it's one one time only um and then i walk in and then i'm sort of thinking labor mps are going to be thinking oh no we've gone back in time the matrix this is bobby ewing in the shower situation (laughs) uh um this is not what we were expecting or necessarily wanting and then i sort of go and sit down and Lu- meanwhile back to lucy powell she's like why hasn't that guy ed rung me back <laughs> uh, and her father texts her to i think they must have announced it or something saying oh ed's about to do pmqs and she was like what <laughs> that's why he didn't ring me back um I didn't really feel very nervous. I know it's a bit weird. Well, you didn't have time. You did. This is the. This is what I was thinking about. You have told me, and you've talked on the podcast about the states you could get into in the morning leading up to, and the no, night. I before. did not have time to ask whether I looked like a badger. Did it not just make you think all those hours that I wasted agonising and worrying about this? I'm really good at it. If if I just go in and do it. To be fair to Keir's office, they'd written me good questions. and Yeah, but it's not just about the questions, is it? I did do a bit of a rewrite. And also, it's like COP, which I do know a lot about. So, you know, mm. in a way, it sort of made it a bit all made it a bit easier. You know what I think is interesting is I did it in a much looser way than I ever did it when I was there. What do I keep telling you? People love loose Ed. Loose Ed. People love um, loose Ed. The looser you are, the more people respond to it. I mean, you well sounded very Larry David there. Um uh, loose ed um maybe that should be my new handle at loose ed um yeah. okay so here's the interesting question if i'd been told three hours before oh you'd be in a right old state i'm not sure actually i think it would have given me more you, because you, you here's here's what you would have done you you wouldn't instead of just looking at the questions getting it ahead ringing one person to check a line you would have rang like 55 different people that's that's what you do well, I'd have done a more of a run through, worked out what he was going to say. I would have, I would have done some adjustment, I think. Um, but I think probably you're right. I would have been more squeaky bum than I was. But I, mean, I haven't done PMQs as the leader of the opposition since I was the leader of the opposition. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, to be fair, the opportunity doesn't really arise. The does opportunity doesn't really arise. <laughs> I don't really know what to make of it. Also, what's really weird about it was that then Rachel Reeves did her excellent budget reply, or then we had the budget, then she did her excellent budget reply. I've I've got a little issue with some of your behaviour during that, though. Why? I feel you were very supportive of some of her humour in a way that you're not always with me. (laughs) You want me to sort of slap my thigh more? Yeah, 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 a bit of that, please, yeah. 
And then I morphed into Ed Balls, actually, in the middle of his budget speech, because he start, kept on saying, we've got more investment than ever, than for 10 years. And, uh, you know, he, when he said it three or four times, our side started saying, well, hang on a minute, that's because you've been in power for 10 years. So you're comparing it to your own crap investment over the last 10 years. I started doing the sort of sledging ah. of saying 10 years, 10 years, 10 years. I was sort of channeling Ed Balls sledging. <laughs> um, uh so then Rachel has her response, and then I go back to my office, and I sort of think, and they said, oh, you know, PMQs was great. And I'm like, PMQs feels like it was like three weeks ago now. You know what I mean? It's sort of very, I mean, mm. it's very odd. It's sort of everything sort of happened quickly, but sort of slowly, or I don't know, quite. Anyway. Well, uh, congratulations. I mean, I, I was just thrilled because it was like, you know, one of those episodes of Doctor Who where there's a big anniversary and then one of the old doctors comes back and it's very exciting to see them again and you're saying like, i'm patrick troughton yeah maybe it's like janet ellis going back to blue peter mm. peter duncan going back to blue peter yeah i feel you're getting a little <laughs> getting hung up on blue peter yeah there. but it was it was a triumphant return you must feel very accomplished well there you go anyway i'm off to cop i'm going to try and get lots of good material and we should sort of say to podcast listeners we're not quite sure how this is going to go but We'll, we'll try, I'll try and do some sights and sounds of COP for, for next Friday. Yeah, Ed's COP Diaries. Ed's COP Diaries. The, the, the secret diaries of Ed, 51 and three quarters. <laughs> so you're going to be chasing people around with your microphone? I don't know. What, that's not quite a good look, is it? Chasing after Joe Biden with a microphone. I'm, just not, <laughs> quite, I'm not quite sure it's the kind of dignified look I'm looking for. Have you got any particular request of who you sort of... Jeff Bezos. If you could ask him, I had a toaster delivered and it, it said it had been delivered, but it never turned up and I've never really got to the bottom of that. So maybe maybe you could ask him about that. I'll 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 investigate that. Um now what are we what are you gonna be talking about this week? I'm gonna be sort of slightly dipping in and out. Well this week we're talking about how cities are leading the way on tackling the climate crisis. As we discussed in our summer series on COP twenty six, a lot of the focus during the summit will be on the emissions pledges made by national governments, which are absolutely vital to limiting global warming. But this week, we're exploring how city and local leaders are pushing for more ambition and taking action to meet our climate goals. So we're going to be speaking to Mark Watts, who is from the International C40 Cities Network, about the power cities have and what they've been doing in the run-up to COP26. Then we'll talk to Polly Billington from UK100 about the work local leaders in the UK are doing on reducing emissions. And then we have a return to the uh, to the pod for Deputy Mayor of Paris, Celia Bloel, um, and she's going to be talking about why Paris has been recognised by the UN for the city's ambitious climate plan. What uh, is your reason to be cheerful? First of all, I'll give you my, my reason to be uh, miserable, terrified. You know, they have that safety announcement, mind the gap. Yeah. Do you ever think to yourself, like, who needs that? Who, yeah. Why are they saying that? Like, we, yeah. we know about the gap by now. I fell down the gap between the train and the platform edge. How? I was multitasking, by which I mean I was listening to a podcast and looking at my phone. I climbed onto a train to go from London Paddington to Oxford, misjudged it, and then all of a sudden I'd, I'd gone down into the gap, all on one side. One leg was right the way around, grazed 
against the train doorstep i somehow managed to throw my phone to safety but then as i dragged myself out i was in such pain but i was getting on this busy train so i didn't want to show it to anybody so i sat down and then all the way from london to oxford i just sat there thinking am i bleeding i'm am so sorry so that's my reason to not be yeah cheerful? and what's your reason to be um, cheerful well do you know about amal the amal walk do you know about this the puppet it's incredible. So I was just wandering around Oxford the other day and all of a sudden there's this commotion. There's loads of people in the street. Uh, there's a brass band playing Dixieland jazz music and I can see up ahead something's going on. And there's this huge puppet of a girl called Little Amal, who is a young refugee who is making a journey from the borders of Syria, across Turkey, across Europe. And it's going to end in Manchester oh, wow. in um in November, and it was just really, really wonderful. Fantastic. It was just, I just loved it. It was really great. So that's my reason to be cheerful. What about you? My reason to be cheerful is that I used to have a lovely person who worked for me called Jill Cuthbertson, um, and her parents are putting me up while I'm at COP. They live in ah. Inchmurin, which is about 25 minutes out of Glasgow. But I am incredibly grateful to her and to, to them because it's very hard to find accommodation in Glasgow. I don't know whether you've sort of been aware of this, but basically the whole world, because the whole world is descending on Glasgow, Glasgow, I think as some of our American friends would, would put it, um, all the castles have been hired out. Otherwise you would have hired a castle. Otherwise, obviously, that's what I'd have done. And I've had you there too. Uh <laughs> But it's incredibly nice of them to um, be putting me up. And also, I think let's be honest with each other, Jeff. I don't think I'm the easiest house guest. Do you know what I mean? Well, I was thinking about this. I mean, you'd probably be coming back at all hours, bringing people back for parties. I'm going to be doing interviews on Monday morning. I think I'm due to get up at sort of crazy o'clock. I think I think they'll be sort of. I think they'll be thinking after COP. Well, thank God that isn't all the year round. Do you know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> Um, anyway, so that, they are my reason to be cheerful. Well, I can't wait to hear about all the breakages and spillages. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we are going to start by talking to Mark Watts, who is Executive Director of C40 Cities. Hello, Mark. Hello. I'm old enough to remember a C30, a C60, a C90. Um, <laughs> I don't remember there being a C40 cassette, which no. uh, for, for any young people who are listening, that's, that's what I'm talking about, audio cassettes. Here. So what is C40 cities? Well, actually, despite our name, we are 100 of the world's greatest cities. So it's, it's the mayors of the big, powerful cities in the world who've come together to show leadership on, on climate breakdown. So it's kind of a, on the one hand, set in political leadership, so this group of mayors was the first to say 1.5 degrees has got to be the maximum temperature rise, not two or, or three, that we need to focus on halving emissions by 2030, not keep talking about zero by mid-century. And then the other side of what we do is demonstrating that everybody will benefit from a faster shift towards a clean economy and the majority of people will be materially better off. And just so that people know just the, the, the scale and scope of the mayors that you've been able to involve in this, can you just give us an, an example of the cities we're talking about here? 
It's it, the big capital cities, London, Paris, New York, Beijing, Tokyo, that you would expect are the financial centres and some, some of the smaller cities, but which are really strong green leaders. So a lot of the Scandinavian cities, Oslo, Copenhagen, Stockholm, etc. And collectively, 700 million people live in these cities and a, a well over a quarter of the global economy is generated there. And 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 as a network, you know, what, what is it that you're doing you know when you get these mayors together you get them into this network you get them involved then what well for me them actually the most inspiring thing is the simplest if you're going to tackle a global problem like climate breakdown or indeed the pandemic you've got to have global cooperation and it's got to ignore differences of culture economy geographic borders and so the simplest thing that c40 does is just bring together the mayor's of the greatest cities in the world so that they inspire and push each other. So we find, as the staff, we find the city that's gone the fastest on cycling or gone the fastest to zero emission building codes, and then we show the other cities that are of a similar type, you could be doing this as well. It's so amazing. I mean, it's, it's almost incredible that this, this didn't exist, that it had to be invented. I, I was around when C40 was, was created back in, in 2005, working for the, for the then mayor of London, Ken Livingston. What was interesting then was we had all kind of bilateral ties with cities, but we didn't do anything that brought numbers of, of mayors together. And the reason it started, when we started developing our climate plan in London, one of the first cities to do so back then, first of all, we found we just didn't have the expertise in ourselves or within the offices within City Hall. And so we, we tried to find out who, who is ahead of us. And then we found a few a handful of cities, Stockholm, Toronto at that time, the mayor of Toronto was, was a real leader. And through working for them, we, we just decided, well, why don't we just do this all the time? And we, we touched on, you know, just what a share of the world's population, uh, the big cities uh, make up and, and also, uh, you know what's generated the economies of these cities but why else beyond those things is it important for cities to take leadership in tackling the climate crisis because this this spreads out beyond just those two things yeah i mean obviously you can't get away from the fact 80 percent or thereabouts of the greenhouse gas emissions that people generate are generated in the cities because it's where most people live and where the richest people live so there's a, I think there's a responsibility. But also it's there's competition between the cities and C40, but it's very different to the competition that takes place between nation states. So they don't resort to wars or trade tariffs when they're fighting with each other. When they're competing, they're competing to be the places that people want to invest or the most talented people want to live and work. And so they've got it is a necessity to make the city attractive at a the building block of that is, is taking out the pollution, uh, making it easy for people to get around, cheap to heat and cool your home. And so so I guess that there's a kind of push in any case to have a sustainable city, but overlaid with that, the, the imperative of the emissions. And actually then finally, the lack of leadership at the intergovernmental and national level, which has left a gap which the mayors of C40 felt they had to try and to a certain extent fill. What are, what are the limits of it? What can't cities do alone? And, and specifically within those cities, what, what, what can cities only do with the support of national government? That's really hard to answer generically because it varies so much. Because if I was talking about half our cities, I'd say, well, they can't change the electricity grid. So ultimately, when it comes to the big shift to renewable energy, national government's got to sort it out. But then I could show you Los Angeles, 
where the mayor owns the energy utility and will have a completely renewable energy on that grid uh, 2035 at the latest and has the city of Los Angeles has the biggest investment in solar power in the United States. I would say as a typical rule of thumb, mayors of the big cities in the C40 can and should take responsibility for about half the emissions in their city, but the other half requires a shift at a national level. And we've got COP26 uh, about to start. In fact, it would have just started by the time people hear the episode. What is C40 planning for it? What are you uh, hoping to to see in terms of uh, furthering this idea, this agenda of city leaders and cities leading on climate action? Well, I guess the, the big difference from for the, the mayors that are going up to COP compared to the presidents and prime ministers is the mayors are not going to be talking about treaty to agree the date by which we'll get to zero emissions in mid-century. They are going to be talking about what they're going to do in their budget this year, next year, to take immediate action so that they're reducing emissions half or more within the next nine to ten years. So very kind of practical focus where they can learn, share, copy uh, from each other. Uh, And that'll get down to talking about stuff like the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan's just done with this huge increase in the ultra-low emission zone, or like the city of Seoul is doing, where they, to stimulate jobs coming out of the pandemic, they've set in place investment to retrofit, so improve the insulation and cooling of every single public building in the city by the end of next year. So within wow. two years, the whole city. Wow. And is, is there an element of competition to this? You know, keeping up with the keeping keeping up with the mayors. You want to say, "Oh, that guy there, you know, she's doing that." Then I'm going to go just a little bit further. Absolutely, and you see it in the room when you, all these mayors are together. You can see the mayor looking at their advisor and saying, "Why didn't we do that?" When they hear, hear something great, and then going back home and changing it slightly and calling it their own, and that's the way it should be. But for a very good reason, because I think they have all understood much more rapidly than national political leaders have that most people will be better off faster the quicker we deliver on the climate agenda. And particularly if you're talking about improving the lives of those who get least out of society at the moment. Let's talk about um, a a, a great success, the Cities Race to Zero campaign. Tell us about that uh, and and, uh, the success it's had and and how you got there with it. So Cities Race to Zero is... um, it is, as it says, it's a, a race for cities to set out how they're going to get to zero emission in, the, in their cities, but with a real focus on their fair share of halving emissions by 2030, which is really the critical climate target. Because if we don't hit that target, then it doesn't matter about the, the targets for 20 or 30 years after that. And so it, it, this is a every member of C40, as a condition of their membership, has had to show that they have a, a plan and are delivering a plan to at least half their emissions by 2030. Some cities, it's 70, 80% reductions, one or two uh, set a goal for zero. But we will be announcing, uh, possibly by the time this podcast is aired, hundreds more cities that have joined that, that commitment uh, in Glasgow at the COP. Can I ask, politically, why, why is it easier to get this stuff through in cities, uh, where, whereas national politics can be more cautious or, or run a bit more scared on it? I mean, I think there's a, there's a, a demographic and an urban political reality. So mayors generally, generally are not feeling the pressure of the sectors 
that have got the most vested interest in sticking with a polluting economy. So the big fossil fuel producers tend to be outside the big cities, the big agriculture sector, obviously. And the cosmopolitan nature of most of the big cities means you've got a lot of the diaspora of the, the citizens who are really feeling the worst effects of climate already. But also, actually, now it's just that pretty much every city is really feeling the impacts of climate. They're generally coastal. They're feeling that flood impact, the extreme heat, the wildfires ripping through cities from in Athens to Los Angeles, uh, you know, right across the world. But, you know, I think it's also the, it, it's this ability to collaborate globally that really makes the difference. When you're constantly, our mayors are talking to each other all the time. And through the pandemic, that's been increased, not decreased. It just means the mayors can move a lot faster. The good ideas travel a lot, a lot quicker. And it means that the fear is taken away. Is, is there anything that doing this in cities does for areas, uh, remote areas, rural areas, small towns, villages, beyond cities making sure that they do their fair share. Is there anything else it does for smaller places? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a very real knock-on effect. So I think you cannot expect the transformation, for example, in the vehicle market to electric vehicles to start in rural areas where people are travelling greater distances and it's harder to to recharge your electric car. So that's got to start in cities, and indeed it it, it is. Uh, so it, one of our cities, Shenzhen in China, has now for two or three years had all of its 10,000 buses are electric. 99% of all the electric buses in the world, actually, are from China. But as you're seeing that spread across the big cities now, it's transformed the whole bus market. And so people using bus services in rural areas very soon will be using electric buses too because the prices have come down so much. But I guess it's true a bit in, in sectors you might not expect as well. I, you might have seen the Milan won um, Prince William's Earthshot Prize around waste for their programme to massively reduce food waste in the city. They've also got a programme where, you know, this, this a very meat-based uh, society Milan has been progressively shifting to a plant-based diet in its schools. And it's uh-huh. done it in such a skillful way that it's popular with children, popular with parents. And so they're now really trying to, as a result of that, they're huge, cities are huge purchases of food. 500 million meals a day served across the C40 cities alone. So it's starting to, to shift food supply markets as well as demand and obviously then with a knock-on impact back into the rural areas making it easier and more profitable for farmers to turn to organic farming to reduce uh, their meat products and shift more in into the vegetable lines the plant-based lines that will give us the protein and, and and a healthier diet that's so interesting we have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy. Uh, it, it was Ed's invention, although he's recently <laughs> turned on it uh, for reasons uh, unspecified. But if we if we were to uh, say, look, we we want you certainly nationally and and with some kind of uh, international role as well to to give thought to empowering cities to take ambitious climate action what what do we need to do nationally to allow that to happen in the cities oh devolve uh, it's the simple answer particularly if we're talking in britain you just give the, the government has set really tough targets science-based targets in britain but as we've seen doesn't have a, a plan for how to deliver it at the moment empower the cities to get on with it 
just finally, I remember watching a program years ago on Channel 4. It was about body language. And they had all these world leaders, uh, you know, in rooms together at, I don't know, G7, G20 summits. And watching them go through a door, it was, we were waiting ages because there's some kind of psychological thing where you're you're showing weakness if you're the first one to go through the door, right? So they're all kind of like offering it to the other person. It becomes a bit of a standoff. Are are there any odd dynamics that you've noticed getting lots of mares in one place? Well, it's a bit the opposite to that. So, I mean, it's kind of an antidote. So, in fact, all the C40 mares that are going to COP are coming into London and then travelling up to COP together on the same train. Oh, wow. Because they want to spend six hours together because they're going to enjoy it and they're going to have a chance to swap ideas on the way up. It's almost the opposite of those really tense <laughs> images you see of the presidents and the prime ministers. This lot love, love spending time together. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us just about this idea of, of how cities can lead on climate action. Mark Watts, thank you. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at BlueNile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Next up, we're going to talk to Polly Billington. Now, straight up out of the gate, Polly, hello. Hello. And I'm I'm right in thinking that at some point in your storied career, you worked for Ed. I did indeed. I started working for Ed in 2007 uh, as a special advisor to him uh, in government and then worked for him when he became leader of the Labour Party after we lost the 2010 election. And and how much money did you manage to save during those years through not having any life of your own? Loads. <laughs> Absolutely loads. And the amount of times that I'd just be about to try on some new clothes in uh, in some posh shop on Saturday afternoon because that'd be literally the only kind of time I'd get out of the house and somebody would phone and it would be like, yeah, okay, no, let leave them in the changing room, go home, go to work. Oh, yeah. I get the impression, like working with him is is a joy in so many ways, but if you want a life, it's perhaps not the job for you. (laughs) That's right. I've got a great life now, let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, tell me about UK 100. So you you work with um, 
leaders uh, around the country on climate. Mm -hmm. Tell us a bit more about that and the story behind it. Well, we established UK 100 uh, in 2016. It first sort of emerged out of uh, the momentum around the Paris Agreement, which people have been talking about quite a lot right now because it was the last big climate change negotiations before this one in, in Glasgow. So in 2015, there was a lot of momentum around we want to get stuff done. But local leaders in this country wanted to demonstrate that they want that they were going to be part of this overall kind of global commitment. So about 60 or so local leaders made a commitment to shift to 100% clean energy by 2050. Now, it is a signal, it is a symbol, I suppose, of how things have improved and changed is that simply shifting, making a, a promise to shift to 100% clean energy was a big deal in 2015. And now it's something that actually local authorities can do pretty easily through procurement and so forth. So basically it came out of that. So originally we had 60 plus once I started to recruit some other councils and now we've upped the game considerably. I think I've just been, just this afternoon, my team have just announced that we've got more than 90 members who have made the new commitment to net zero on their own assets by 2030. That's basically everything that they own using all of that, their, their sort of, their estate um, by 2030. And across the whole community that they are sort of responsible for by 2045. Now that's five years earlier than the, than the uh, national target. And that's deliberately more ambitious because we know that, you know, there'll always be laggards. So if we're going to hit 2050, the most ambitious have got to go faster. But also, they know they won't really be able to do that unless some significant changes happen at national level. And this gives them the momentum and the argument to go to national government and say, look, you can't get to net zero without us. If you want to get to net zero, you're going to have to help us help you. So can you help us change the rules? And that's really what we've been working on. And, and how big a part is, I guess, I don't know if peer pressure is the right word, but the, the advantage of having a network is you get to yeah. the, this tipping point, you get to this yeah. you get this head of, head of steam. Well, I've got a really good example of that. We always start our sort of campaigns or our issues around what our members say is a problem, right? So one of the big problems they had was um, about air pollution. So we set up clean air conversations where leaders would come together in a room and talk about how they were dealing with clean air in their own areas. Now, a couple of really good examples. So one of the things was Nottingham. I don't know whether you've had these guys on. You should have them on because they're, they're ever so low key. They're not like, woo, it's all amazing. But, and that's one of the things was what I was so, so struck by because we said we need to get Nottingham on to talk about their workplace parking levy. Now, I know, Jeff, that not, does not like sound. No, like I, I'm thing. salivating. You should get, you should get very we were, excited. We were trying for, for Obama, but but now I think <laughs> workplace now parking want, levy. Now is, you is want Nottingham's workplace for. parking yeah. levy. Well, actually, you do, right? Because we got them to talk about it, and all the other members, all the others were going, "Well, we couldn't do that. How did you get away with that? That's so politically risky. Didn't you have massive resistance from the local?" Um, businesses didn't you have a massive resistance from residents because what they did was they charged companies who got parking spaces in the city and they said we're going to charge extra for you having if you're going to have those if you're going to bring uh, cars into the city because you say that your staff need to be able to drive in you're going to have to pay so they charged the company not the individuals and it was up to the company how they managed to do that very quickly, what you found was, A, it raised money, which they then spent on buses. 
And very quickly, companies suddenly realised that it was actually quite a good idea to encourage their staff to use other ways of getting into work. And the other one that came up was people saying other London boroughs were saying, well, we've got differential parking um, charges for dirty cars. So old diesel cars, most polluting, we, we just we charge them more for their parking vouchers. And again, loads of teeth sucking, loads of people from other parts of the country going, oh, we couldn't possibly get away with that, mate. No, possibly. Next time round, we had the same clear, clean air conversation a few months later. <laughs> people who said, oh, you couldn't possibly do that, were saying, well, we've put this in our manifesto. Wow. Or we're now out, we're putting it out to consultation, or we've implemented it. So we've got workplace parking levies now under consultation or being floated or, or explored in other parts of the country. And we've got differential parking charges in other parts of the country where people said previously they couldn't possibly wear it. I, t- I tell you what's really interesting as well. I think when I was thinking about this as a, as a subject, I was wondering just how much is in local authorities' gifts in, yeah. in this country. Because the thing comes up on the podcast time and time again, we're so centralised and so many of the ideas we hear about involve you know, giving power away from Westminster. But what was really interesting about what you said before is that by the council going hard on their assets and looking at ways of meeting this through their assets, it encourages behaviour change in in the wider community. Well, it demonstrates leadership. And what's really useful, and I think this would be really, really good to to make sure that everybody is aware of this piece of work that we've done, which was called Power Shift. And it's a comprehensive analysis of all the powers that local authorities have got that can be used for climate action. And yes, they can demonstrate leadership. For example, the biggest ones that they've got is procurement, basically buying services, right, and goods, and planning. And almost every tier of government, effective, useful tier of government in, in terms of climate, has got some kind of planning powers. So are you putting in uh, criteria to say that in, actually a development can only really go ahead if it has um, it has uh, considered um, making sure that there is public transport. Are they having EV charging points put in? Basic stuff that would mean that if you're building more homes, you're doing it in the right way. What is your regeneration criteria? Are you making sure that you've got proper retrofit standards on commercial buildings as well as on 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 um, houses? How are you supporting people to do that who've got who own their own homes? Or, for example, landlords who might, of course, they don't get much of the benefit if they're putting that stuff in. How do you make sure that happens? All of those things are possible for a local authority to do, but that requires them to have resource. It requires them to have know-how. It requires them to have capacity and all of those kind of things. And sometimes, literally, the the rules and the laws of the land get in the way or make it more expensive. So that's when we need to. So it's not just about resource. It is actually also about changing the rules. It's, it's, it's incredibly exciting hearing not only about what's been done and 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 this network that you've been able to form, but also just about the, the possibility, you know, the, the possibility of all of this. And have, having been such a great advocate for um, what can be done locally, I now want to give you a role, a national role within the Jeffocracy. If, if we were to <laughs> make you, I don't even know what the job title would be, but it would be something about giving away power or supporting local communities uh, on climate action. What is the first thing you would do in national government? Well, I think what we actually need is a cross-departmental net zero local delivery board, 
right? A board which brings together proper representations from all of local government, not everybody in local government, but all tiers of local government, including the metro mayors, but down to district councils at least, with all the relevant departments, right, which is which is the business and energy and industrial strategy department, the local government one, the levelling up department with Michael Gove, Department for Transport, Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, but also the Department of Health and, our, you know, and, and there are other ones as well. In a Jeffocracy, I would ask Jeff and I certainly ask Ed to put in the manifesto for next time round a commitment not only to that delivery board, but also to a net zero local powers bill so we can change those rules nationally so that they can enable local climate action rather than limit it. And I think that is an amazing opportunity for anybody who's going to have any power in this country to transform our chances of being able to get to net zero. We're going to be looking at Paris in a minute. Um, is there anywhere internationally you look at and think that's that's what we need to be doing more of? Oh, yeah, there's loads of places. But I have to say, Jeff, one of the things I find really frustrating is the amount of people say, well, we just need to be more like Copenhagen. Right. And I say... Uh, yes, and Copenhagen is about the size of Croydon, yeah. and it's completely flat, and it has been doing this for 40 years. So get back to me when you've got something that's really comparable. It's much more useful if you're talking about, for example, transforming your community to make it better for walking and cycling to talk to Leicester and Waltham Forest, right? So obviously, I can go on about Seattle and Los Angeles and Seoul and blah, blah, blah. But mo mostly, we're about saying, you know what? Sunderland's picked up on something here. I think you should listen to them. Well, it's been brilliant talking to you. I, I feel really excited about the, the network and just what you were saying then about there's all these great ideas. And because there is this sniffiness, almost that local, local government, local authorities sometimes thought of as, I don't know, if it's parochial or provincial or provincial, they are, they are in a sense sort of inherently. But do, do you know what I mean? There's, there's oh, this, yeah, yeah. this sniffiness and there's so many great ideas out there. And it's, uh, it's so great that you're kind of linking them all together like that. Polly, thank you so much for talking to us. Polly Billington, Chief Executive of UK100. Uh, thanks for taking the time. Absolute pleasure. All right. I am thrilled to say for the final part of this conversation, we are going to the City of Lights. Oh, yes, please. Paris is extraordinary, actually. Paris recently won a UN Global Climate Action Award for its Plan Climat. It's a really wide-ranging and impressive strategy for reducing emissions in Paris. And here to talk about it, it is a joy to welcome back to the podcast Deputy Mayor of Paris, Celia Bloel. Salut! Hello, bonjour. So the award then, I mean, first of all, tell us about it. It's, it's for the, the Plan Climat. And where were you when you found out? I think I was somewhere around the river, the, the river Seine. Uh, so it was really nice. We hold the team. I was really happy when we heard about it because it's a UN prize and that it's it's really for the whole city action. So it's it's considering all the people. So everybody's really proud and proud also that uh, is saluted the idea that our climate plan is really comprehensive. We've been working a lot to go to every, every sources of GHG emission, which is a big challenges from uh, energy to food to buildings to everything. But also we worked a lot about citizen mobilization, which seems to be more and more the key to action. So yeah, I guess everybody in Paris is really proud uh, within the team and, and, and even more around. 
Well, congratulations. I mean, I'm really interested in, in a lot of the detail in the planner, but I wondered if you could just tell us like the, the big sort of overarching vision for the plan, first of all. Well, uh, about big ideas, I would say you have to think about that we uh, try, we started working on that plan in 2015, so it was COP21 moment. So first thing is that we worked as well on mitigation than adaptation. Adaptation in a sense, just not like a response to crisis, but really how we prevent things, how we work on resilience. Second thing would be that comprehensive view that I was telling you. We didn't just uh, focus on energy or mobility. We really wanted to see the overall uh, emissions, so meaning also on food, on the, um, good transportation, also airplanes uh, emission from the people of Paris when they go on holiday. So it's a really comprehensive overview, which is really interesting. And and the idea was really to go to concrete action, just not to set targets, which is, we're all doing this for years and it's kind of being boring. So it was really how we have implementation, implementation, implementation in all the fields of area. And maybe the third thing is really about mobilization. The idea that we won't make it. We can have a really nice plan, but if we don't get a dynamic from citizens to big companies to everybody getting on board on that dynamic, uh, we won't make it. So we worked a lot on how we could yeah, get people with us. The thing that's made a lot of headlines is the plan to green the Champs-Élysées, yeah. which... Is uh, is incredible because you know every everybody thinks of of that uh, that that boulevard and and you just think of the traffic sitting still on it. How how has that plan gone down? And just just tell us about what the what the vision is. Well, the idea is really to go forward in what we already started to implement. You know, like five years ago, people were like shouting a lot about what we did about the River Seine, taking the cars out to put people and life. <laughs> the Champs Elysees is like just. Uh, following this but still it, it, it's lots of questions for people the idea is really to lower down considerably uh, the, the presence of, of, of cars which is like yeah following on GG emission reducing air pollution but also to make the nature back into Paris what is new actually is that we had that idea in the city hall but uh, the idea uh, came also from the people the association of all the people having shops that are really important on the Champs-Élysées, they are making everyday life there. And that association put that project on the table three years ago, saying, okay, we are part of this movement, we know this is future, so now we won't resist. In the opposite, we will help you and go there. I guess you're talking about the uh, the business owners there. This is part of what you mentioned before, that third prong of of getting people on board with the ideas. What is the key to that, have you found? Well, that's a good question. I still have no idea <laughs> because it's never the same way it's working on how you get people on board. But I think one of the clue is speaking, talking, sharing. Um, you can be radical with the, the target and with the objective, but then you have to settle a path with the people. So it's a bit tiring, but it works because there are more people than ever that are enthusiastic uh, with with, uh, with these issues. Um, sometimes, uh, and I guess it's the same um, for you, like when you think about the planet and, and that cops coming one after another, you have the feeling nothing is like really moving. But still, some days I'm meeting so many people enthusiastic that are now really having technical problem in going in that way that I feel, no, we are in. It's still difficult, white pages on some issues, but we are building it. So, so yeah, talking, sharing, I think. 
And and one of the big ideas at the heart of the plan is something we talked about on this podcast. We did an episode on, I guess, walking and, and cycling um, a, a while ago. And it's this 15-minute city is the concept. Can you just remind people what that is and, and um, what you're doing with it in the context of Paris? Well, I think the 15-minute city is a way of showing you how the world could be really funnier uh, even with taking on board that uh, <laughs> ecological um, uh, issues, the idea is that we are building the city that everything you need in your everyday life is 15 minutes walking uh, available. So school could be the capital on, on, of all the suburban area. And from school, you have 15 minutes to shop, 15 minutes to go to have maybe a theater, 15 minutes to go to the doctor. And like, it's really the idea of relocalizing. So... 15 minutes within city, 30 minutes within a rural area. The idea that you don't have to take your car for everything you need and make long distances to have uh, the everyday services you need. For me, it's like uh, working on, 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 on the planet issues for many years now. I like the idea of that 15-minute city because it helps to uh, explain everybody this, the world we want to, to build. Of course, you'll be able always to go two hours long if you need to go somewhere else. But the idea of sobriety, how do you say, yeah, like to be sober, sorry, uh, and to be uh, yes. less, yeah, less energy consumption in whatever you do, but also it helps to have more community life living, which, which would be really interesting. So we're quite, um, quite uh, yeah, optimistic about the fact that by 2030, this would be a reality. What can cities outside of France learn from Paris? Obviously, you, you have this plan climat, which has so many ideas that uh, cities and, and um, towns and different areas can take inspiration from. But specifically in the idea of how, how a city can lead on this, um, what can we learn from Paris? Well, first, you know, Paris learned a lot from the others. Uh, that's about climate issues. I mean, we are not like... I mean, we took many ideas from our friends in other cities and they take ideas from us. So I'm not sure we are the one you can... You've got the award. You've yeah, got the award. yeah, that's true. But but I mean, we have to rest. Yeah, it remains some humility facing that, that big thing. But um, I would say um, it, it confirms, Paris confirms that at the local level, we have the keys. I mean, and that nothing is really impossible at the local level. Maybe the second thing to look at in Paris, it's what something I'm really proud of, is that comprehensive vision. I mean, I, I'm, sometimes I'm, I'm laughing when I see other cities saying, we are, we're going to be natural, carbon natural by 2030, but they just talk about mobility and just energy. I mean, you have to face everything and the lobby with them because it's, it's important. And maybe I would add that for me, that climate plan is also really important because you know we wrote it just after uh, the terror attack in 2015 and cop21 and could be weird to hear but it changed a lot of things for us it was not on it was not anymore uh, an environmental issue the, the city was putting a pu public politic on it was um, how we're building a society and how for us people in that climate plant is really important. It's really nice to retrofit. It's really nice to buy electric uh, buses or hydrogen or whatever. But our idea from 2015 was how we could get people on board and how we are building something really nice, I, I'm sure, uh, that still needs a story to be shared, which is really complicated still now. But definitely to stick on that thing we are building a society thing and 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 this is what i think make our plan a bit like specific 
Well, it's fantastic. The award is thoroughly deserved and uh, it's really inspiring what you're doing there. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to us. Celia Blowell, uh, Deputy Mayor of Paris. Thanks. My pleasure. Thank you. See you soon. Well, I don't know about you, but what I really liked about that conversation was that it wasn't theoretical. Often on this podcast, we look at a problem and then we meet people with ideas that we'd love to see implemented. But with this, the problem is our great existential threat, climate crisis. But from all three of our guests, we heard stories of cities and towns actually enacting plans and leading on this. And the other thing I was just thinking about was something that's emerged time and time again on the podcast is is that devolving power away from national government to regions and cities seems to be key. And with this, as well as the demographics of cities, which tend to lead to more progressive election results, there is perhaps something more nimble in local and regional governments ability to get things done i'd love to know what you think you can get in touch with us via the website it's cheerfulpodcast.com send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com find us on facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast well i've reappeared here he is just like that just like that is that tommy cooper it was Tommy Cooper, yeah, yeah, just like that. And you had Polly on, who used to work for me. I did, I did. Uh, she, she did say that she saved a lot of money while she was working for you because she couldn't go out and spend it because she didn't have a life. I mean, it's terrible, isn't it, Jeff? I mean, it's like people reproduce, you know what I mean? It's like that's the life I had working for Gordon and then I've reproduced it with the people working for me. Break the cycle, Ed, you can do it. I was talking about this recently at a book festival and it suddenly sort of became apparent to me because... Um, Ollie from my office was in the audience. It's like a Sunday night, and I thought, oh. Oh, it was a lovely trip out for him. Well, he chose to come, to be fair to him. Sort of. He did choose to come. Hey, do you know who Lucy Preble is? I've heard of her, definitely. She wrote Enron. Well, she's she's written a bunch of stuff. She's a a really acclaimed playwright, and she wrote that uh, great drama called I Hate Susie with with Billy Piper last year. And she did write Enron as well, didn't she? Yes, she she did, yeah, yeah. Yeah. uh, Yeah. And she is one of the uh, the, the head writers and and co-executive producers on Succession. Yes. She tweeted about our Succession podcast this week, saying this Succession podcast is excellent. Fantastic! I know. I I have to say, you know, I listened to the preview since since you mentioned it last week. I listened to the preview of it and it was really your preview and it was really funny. It was really good. I haven't listened to any of the episodes because I want to watch Succession, so I don't want to sort of spoil it. But I thought it was very you were you were you know there was there was fizz. There was there was there was. What do you think? Fizz. Is it the chemistry between me and my wife? Uh, minor. We could build chemistry. on that. Yeah. Uh, no, it was it was really it was really good. So we're just chasing the official HBO Succession podcast in the charts at the moment. Wow. They were at number three in the TV chart and we were at number four. And we're, we're, we're trying to get Jeff, people to... Jeff, that is brilliant. We're, we're just trying to get, get people to give a, a couple of you know, older people in their 40s, some middle-aged dreamers, just trying to give us this little boost at our time of life and leapfrog I mean, is, the HBO podcast. That is brilliant. 
And are you enjoying it, the podcast? Yeah, but I'm, I'm really desperate for you to watch the show that, so that I can then talk to you about it. Not on the podcast, I just really love talking about post-cop, it. Post-cop, I think post-cop, realistically. Your life is, you know, you, you, you really need to uh, uh, treat yourself to some ed time post-cop. There's, there's, I think my family would agree with that, except not, they wouldn't say ed time, actually. They'd say family time. Do you want to thank our guests? Yes, everybody sends you their best, Ed, and they were all magnificent. Mark Watts, Polly Billington and Celia Blowell. Emma Caution produces our podcast, gets it sounding nice, and today is a very significant day, so I'm glad that you're here for this bit. You're in denial, Ed, here, I can tell. This is not Joel's last episode, really, though, is it? Well, is it, is it, as you've said before, when people work for you, is it ever really their last day? But hang on a minute, a... isn't Joel around next week? <laughs> no, he's, he's saying no. We, we have something exciting lined up for you next week that Joel has been, uh, been cooking up that you will find very interesting, especially because the news will be dominated by, by COP. But this, this is the last episode in, in which the hand of Joel, that Joel is the architect. Oh, I see. So, I mean, I, I sort of hadn't really realised this, Joel. Okay, Jeff. Okay, well, we need to do thank proper thank yous to Joel. Then. When when we first hired Joel, I said to you, you know what the trouble is when you hire someone like that. Yeah. And and I said that they're, they're too good. They will eventually leave. And I mean, the thing, the thing is, you, sometimes, you sometimes have a bit of difficulty grasping that concept. Can I just make a sort of theoretical sort of point here, which is that if good people leave, right? Mm. And we've had, like, now Alex and Joel both leaving, but we haven't left. What does that mean about us? <laughs> you know there is such a thing as a, a career trajectory. There's, a, there's, You know, gravity applies to careers. What goes up must come down. These, these are bright young things on their way up. Anyway, Joel has been absolutely fantastic. And yeah. he's, he's basically irreplaceable, I think. That is the problem. It is the, I mean, it, it literally is the problem, as it turns out. I mean, out, it but. literally is the problem. <laughs> <laughs> but let's not get bogged down in that right now. Anyway, Joel, you've been tremendous, and we're sort of hoping you're still going to be around a little bit. <laughs> Whereas I am going to respect your boundaries, Joel. Uh, I make no promises to respect your boundaries, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> because it would be unfortunate if I broke my promise. So it's better not to make the promise... And not to respect the boundaries, but to make wow. the promise and to break the promise. That might be the first time a politician's ever said that, Ed. Exactly. Isn't, the, isn't generally the rule, make the promise, worry about it later? Yeah, exactly. Well, Ask for forgiveness. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you to Joel. And uh, Joe Kenyon, of course, who supports Joel in his work. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Uh, Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our idents. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cull. All right. He's off to the cop. He's off to the corner shop. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Goodbye, Joel. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.